Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Film Squawk. Now and Then. Directed by Leslie Linkaglatter, 1995. In the summer of 1970, four 12-year-old best friends grow up and apart. But a promise brings them back together again as 90s adults to reflect on the past. Whether you're new to Crow Talk or a seasoned listener, you're joining us during a singular time in 21st century history. As you're critically aware, coronavirus has rerouted normal life, tipping everything expected on its head. This podcast is no exception. Instead of recording Season 3 episodes from our studio at Western Washington University, we will be podcasting from our couches and remote workstations. We will use headphones with tiny microphones as dogs bark outside and our partners quietly bring us tea. Just as the quality of our production must shift, so has the dynamic of film viewing. So, welcome to our Season 3 series, Streaming in the Time of COVID, where we will reflect on the experience of viewing, share yays and nays, squawk our opinions, and consider takeaways. Things we want to remember moving forward about this film, or film in general. That 90s show. That 90s show. That 90s show. show. Because we understand how many people love 90s films, we've decided to throw it back. And joining this podcast, we have not only Laura returning to offer her wise views and 90s culture, but we also have Ashton for the very first time. Ashton, say hello. Hello. Ashton is also a owner at Talking to Crows. And you probably recognize her immediately if you've seen our film, Just Like the Men. Uh, she is one of the stars. So Ashton, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a Gemini vegetarian. <laughs> That's not true. No, it's not. I'm not a vegetarian. Nice. Um, Can we get a fact check? Yeah, my name is Ashton. I was born in the 90s, which is different than most of the people on this podcast. All the people. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have a view that I'm bringing directly from our young millennial uh, culture here. So I'm here to represent for all you young millennials out there. Thank God there's one of you. And for our very first ever That 90s Show edition of Crow Talk Film Squawk, we selected Now and Then, directed by Leslie Linka Glatter in 1995. And like all throwback films, reviewings, nostalgia-driven experiences that we may be having right now during our time in COVID, we sometimes can look back with fresh eyes and see things we wouldn't have noticed the first time around or the seventh time around, depending on which 90s classic you're reviewing. And some of us had seen uh, Now and Then a few times and others had only maybe seen it one time or not at all. So we're going to have quite a few different perspectives uh, on this 95 film. And I know we have some yays, some reasons our listeners would potentially want to revisit Now and Then. I will go ahead and start us off because for me, the biggest yay of all of this movie is the nostalgia. I was definitely someone who watched this numerous times as a child. I was 11, 12 when it came out. So I was the exact age of those girls. And just watching it as problematic as parts of it are, uh, (laughs) I just got back into that nostalgic, rich 90s vibe. My yay is Rosie O'Donnell. I'm so jealous of that. Yay. It's (laughs) a good one. Watching it again, you know, this is also tied to nostalgia. Um, she was such a prominent actor during the 90s. She was everywhere. It was freaking rosy. And so she was my favorite thing about the movie. I actually didn't remember a whole lot going back into it. And so, rosy. 
my yay is Rosie. No, just kidding. But it is. No, it is though. But mine's the cast, just the overall cast, because it's a star-studded 90s cast. Funnily enough, my yay is also the cast. As someone who had never seen the movie before, um, I there was some good surprises in there. Brendan Fraser was a nice surprise to just pop up randomly. I didn't know he was in the picture, and then all of a sudden, walking in the middle of the road, there's Brendan Fraser. Yay. Gotta love a like one-minute Brendan Fraser. And I, I absolutely have to second the nostalgia, Laura. It is palpable. So frequently in 90s films, there's just this this granular quality, this this vibe. And I, I appreciate that so much about this film. Uh, even, even if <laughs> some of the decisions like fashion-wise and makeup and even just how they sometimes light things and the, the way they choose to highlight characters, uh, we've come so far uh, and things have changed so much in cinema, but I still really appreciate it for what it is. It just creates a, a really familiar, warm, positive feeling for me so that's definitely my yay but like revisiting all potentially good or bad things uh, you're going to find nays reasons why you maybe don't need to see this film again or maybe you wouldn't recommend uh, anyone else revisiting it what are what are some nays that crept up during this viewing experience the nay for me was the 90s writing uh, I also watched it quite a bit as a kid and yeah, rewatching it, there's a certain callousness of the 90s trying to be like progressive, but really failing really hard, falling really, really short in like certain giant blind spots. So for me, for a rewatch situation, that was like such a glaring factor. I might tag on to that, that nay, because one of the things I noticed was the, I don't want to say the lack of diversity, just like no diver, like no people of color in the film until the very, very end there is one child when it like flashes back to the 90s. But this idea that in 1970, people of color didn't exist uh, is, I think, pretty heavy throughout the film and hard to ignore uh, and really unfortunate. And looking back on it as a movie that was so fundamental to me as a child to, to realize how how white the films I grew up on are and how that shifts perspective and how that or limits shifts of perspective, um, I think was really glaring in this film. Yeah, I think a reason to not see this film would be if you haven't seen it as a kid. Oh, my God. Because if there's no nostalgia for you, there's really not a lot of meat on the bones. It was a definitely a hollow rewatch for me because I've just changed so much as a viewer and the content that I'm consuming now is just so different than what it used to be. Yeah, so my nay, uh, having no nostalgia factor going into seeing this movie as I had not ever seen it up until being a 28-year-old lass, was that there was no nostalgia attaching me to it, and (laughs) there wasn't much substance-wise that I was connecting to on that same level, but I could see if you had seen it in your formative years how there could be areas that you would connect to. So having that um, nostalgia piece with it is definitely a way you can connect better to this movie without it. I just don't think there's as much context to connect to. Though I appreciate the focus on friendships because I I always do. I just love good friendship story, especially friendships between women. But I, I struggled to understand their 
the lasting nature of their connection. And it probably goes back to not having enough character development or the time. I really feel like when they last saw one another, uh, really kind of deterred from their connection. So I think that that was something that I wish would have been stronger. I think that, that can be applied to a lot of different 90s storytelling examples. Did the plot remind anybody of the movie It? I could see why you would say that. It's like they go into the sewer and it's like kind of creepy and it's a gang of friends on their bikes. I don't know. Or maybe, mm. um, oh, what's the one about the railroad tracks? It's the other Stephen Stand, Stand by, by me. me. Yeah. It's like the girls. Because it's kind of creepy. And even as a kid, I don't remember loving it. Like I watched it a bunch, which I would attribute to Cable. Well, and you know what's really interesting about that is – because I was thinking about this when I started watching it, I completely forgot about the the like dead kid and the go like I remembered the rain and the and the going into the sewer like getting stuck, but there was so much of this movie I forgot, and I think that in and of itself speaks a lot of like what I remembered and what I held on to and why I was like oh I love because I was the one that suggested it. I was like oh now and then I love that movie, sorry guys <laughs> because like in retrospect wow. Um, <laughs> But like, you know, there are certain moments like the, the baseball moment was one that I vividly remembered. Uh, obviously, Devin Sawa vividly remembered. <laughs> but I, I just think it, I think it speaks to the lack of substance of the movie because there was so much that it, it was just for the number of times I saw this as a child, thanks to Cable, it didn't stick at all. Well, and someone mentioned that it was a star-studded cast. I think that was someone's yay. That was me. And I meant and... to say it was a white star-studded cast because <laughs> fucking brilliant point, Laura. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that if we start coming through a lot of our old nostalgic films, that's what we're going to find. But I, I think that a big draw for this film was the cast. Like they got so many famous people at the height of their career in one movie. And that was all it needed to sell. Yeah, they didn't get... even have to be good actors. But yeah, they just more. had, they were just stars. So I think that, I don't know, maybe there wasn't even a lot of critical acclaim to it back then. It was just very popular. And it caught us all right at the, except at sweet young Ashton. I was three years old when this movie yeah, came out. Three years old time. <laughs> I am curious when you think of iconic 90s paraphernalia or tastes or commercials or sayings or products, what comes to mind for you? Iconic 90s stuff, I think of just just sitting and watching television and just fun, bright, vibrant commercials always come to mind. Probably because I was a child at the time, but <laughs> the big Legos come to mind, not the small ones, but the large ones. No, uh, Toys R Us ads. Mine would be eating PB crisps while watching Saved by the Bell. That's like a '90s just moment right there. I can taste it. I can hear it. You'll never let those oh. PB crisps go. You bring them up like once a year. Never. At least. Maybe more. I'll see your PB crisp and I'll raise you the Dunkaroo. Ooh. Oh, yes. I respect that. More poker words that I don't know. Are you going to raise her? You're going like, to I'll raise you a... Uh, hmm. Gushers. Gushers. Oh, gushers. Gushers. Squeeze it. Try to squeeze it. Oh, oh, no. You guys, caramel apple suckers. Oh, yeah. Those are still around. That's yeah. Big, those are forever. They're still oh, around. Wow. I know, but I used to get them like the big bags for sleepovers. Yeah. And my friends and I would like listen to No Doubt or 
or TLC, we put the music video on and dress like them and like do their dance moves and put and like the little the suckers up to the roof of your mouth. Oh yeah. Yes. It, it's stuck to the roof of your mouth. You've got all these crazy butterfly clips in your hair and oh choker, you know, like the expandy, mm-hmm. like the stretchy choker, the black yeah. oh, the net kind. Those are cool oh. now. They're like no, but that's only because of yeah. well. I think that actually probably came out of the 70s. And so you're seeing, of course, like ripples uh, from other, especially fashion, other eras, but... Bell bottoms. Peace I was just going to say the bell bottoms. Yeah. Girls rule, like all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like lava lamps. and powers. Yeah. Spice they brought girls. it all back. Just Spice, spice girls, girls constantly. Aww, how did none of us say the Spice Girls now? I know. Shame on us. I needed yeah. to slip that in there because we you. couldn't go through a 90s thing without saying Spice Girls. Backstreet Boys. <laughs> in sync there there was this quintessential best afternoon for in like 98 99 um beautiful day out laying on like a, a blanket outside with your radio and your recorder your tape recorder and waiting for your favorite song to come on and hitting record at the exact right moment to add to your mixtape <laughs> That's like, that's 90s for me, like just so different from what kids these days have to go through. <laughs> but yeah, that that's a perfect moment. I think really ridiculously, I wanted to remember sayings and someone was mentioned like girl power, but also like talk to the hand. I can't even Don't believe we hand. said that. Or hella. Or no duh. Or, no duh. Or bling. Whatever. Bling. Whatever. Major. Luther. <laughs> How about some iconic 90s movies? We need to recall again that I was I was born in 1992, so I was a child in the 90s. But these are my favorite movies that I put on here from the 90s. So obviously, number one, Space Jam. We got Matilda. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, any of them. I even like Turtles in Time. I know it's controversial. (laughs) Ever After, The Three Ninjas, all of them, except for the one where they go to the amusement park. Uh, Wait, how many are there? Sorry. Clueless. Ashton, how many Three Ninjas are there? Three Ninjas, Three Ninjas, Kick Back, (laughs) Three Ninjas. I can't remember the second one. I always forget. There's three from the the original cast, and then they have Three Ninjas at High Noon. There's four. There's four because there's okay. I've only seen them. This doesn't matter. Sorry, that was a weird segue. Love three ninjas. Rocky, Colton, Tum Tum, love them. I got caught kissing a Rocky poster in the movie store. Rocky loves Emily Cassidy. You're you're barking up the wrong no, tree. I was trying to step in and just like kiss him on the mouth on the poster really quick. I was like seven. Last three are all Whoopi Goldberg movies: Ghost, Sister Act Two, Back in the Habit, and The Page Master. Ooh, that's a nice. solid and lengthy list. Are there any left? <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say Titanic. That's the most iconic one for me. Mine would definitely be Clueless or uh, Ever After, which I totally forgot about until Ashton just said it. I was definitely in a, I'm realizing now the particular mid to late 90s was like when I hit my rom-com stride as I guess I would have been like a 12-year-old because <laughs> I was thinking like Sliding Doors, the 90s Emma, uh, You've Got Mail. Mm. Which I will still watch. Oh, yeah. That and Sleepless in Seattle. I always, yeah. if it's on, I own them. I'll put them on. I really love 10 Things I Hate About You. It came out in 99, so it's barely, it just barely made the cut, but definitely But that 90s. embodies, like, so much of the 90s and, like, Absolutely. what was cool. 
I was also going to say ever after formative high school time. Clueless, obviously. Hocus Pocus. But probably my biggest one that I remembered that I've not seen in a long time would be My Girl. Oh, oh yeah. No. That's a sad yeah, movie. Yeah, Very That's... sad. Ugh. No. But <laughs> yes. Father of the Bride. Oh, <gasps> yes. Yes. But My Steve Girl? Martin made his okay. way onto this we podcast, this. too. Seriously. Oh, Three Amigos, too. Man, we watched a lot of comedies in the 90s. <laughs> House Sitter. Okay. House Sitter. Oh, God. Well, Overboard. And I think a, a lot of these Overboard. were movies, some early 90s, and I think, I mean, this is going to dip into the 80s too, but I think because of the way television worked, right, being homesick from school, watching like the USA Network and just like random movies, you're like, I guess this is what I'm watching now. I'm suddenly watching Ghost Dad. Like, this is just what's happening, <laughs> you know? And because it's like, there's no other, it's this or the news, and I'm 12, so clearly... Right. And I'm going to watch. Or Jerry Springer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the movie's having... going to play like four times that day, too. Yeah. Right? You are going to uh, learn that film. I kind of miss those days. Well, and we rented a lot of a lot of movies, like from the grocery store. My mom would go and just be at our staples. Because as soon as we bought movies, we stopped watching them. So they spent so much money renting the same movies again and again and again. Uh, you know, good old VHS how good did it eventually, feel to have DVD, a stack? Eventually, like to just come home oh, from yeah. the video store with like a stack of four VHSs. So I had a unique experience growing up. My grandparents owned a video store. What? Yeah. This is explaining so much. How did none yeah. of the wait? No one knew this about no, her. I didn't no. know. I didn't know this. What the hell? You need to like put this on a name tag and wear it around. Or something. <laughs> Yeah, so my dad would have us every other weekend and we would go over to Port Orchard and he would have to work one of the weekend days and the uh, satellite shop that he worked at that my grandpa also owned was right next door to the video store and there was a door that connected um, inside the satellite shop. So my brother and I would just go in, grab a random video, whatever we wanted to watch and then pop it in and play it at the satellite shop while we were waiting for my dad to get off work. And so we would watch whatever movie we wanted. Did your grandparents' store have like tags, like movie tags, where you do like take the little tag and then you like take it up to the counter and they're like, oh, I'll go get that tape for you. And then they like, take the tag and go get it. No, they were just on the shelf. You just grabbed the whole. <laughs> <laughs> Cassie's mind's blown. <laughs> where I was making out with Rocky. Okay. <laughs> They were just cases everywhere. But that sounds like so dreamy, Ashton. And yeah, it does explain a lot. I can remember being like 14 and my dream being to work in a video store. Like, because you'd go in and there'd, there'd always be a movie playing and it'd be like, mm -hmm. oh my God, I want to pick what movie gets to play in the store. <laughs> the dream. It was Nine a dream. It was never dream. fulfilled because obviously Netflix. <laughs> and, <laughs> I second that dream and then I got a job at Suncoast. Oh. I fulfilled it fulfilled the dream and? but then it went out of business oh because you know netflix something i was noticing as i was you know searching through different 90s films and looking at my letterbox and kind of seeing where i've rated some of these classic films from my childhood i wanted to dive a little bit further into the women behind the films and just kind of see where they ended up you know because with our director of this film she moved on to television and quite a few directors, especially directors who only 
directed one or two films, female directors did move into television, uh, directing and producing at the television level. Uh, But there are quite a few female directors that continued to make many films moving forward and are still making films today. Uh, Not all of them, but some like Nora Ephron or Sofia Coppola, Catherine Bigelow, Nancy Myers. Like there are some big names of women attached to films in the 90s who then went on to be active filmmakers. But I still can't stop thinking about the women who moved over to, to TV. Like with Gladder, our director, she directed the television show Homeland, which she just won an Emmy for, and contributed to episodes of The West Wing, Mad Men, Gilmore Girls. She also co-produced for Homeland and HBO's The Leftovers. And there are so many other examples, but we think that maybe they've disappeared, but they haven't. They're still actively working and creating in the industry. It just shifted gears. And it just shows like how the industry praises dudes. I think that we like lose female directors or you know like that we wouldn't understand like oh yeah she went from this project that I loved in the 90s over here to do this you know I feel like sometimes with male directors it's easier to like follow their train of projects that they've worked on and there's something to be said for male directors they give them a chance at failure you can see so many male directors have had some bummer movies and it's not necessarily the director's fault sometimes it's the script sometimes it's the actors sometimes it's just the way of the world what have you but when female directors have that same experience they don't get a second chance they get that one shot and that's it well and potentially not only they're they lose out but like that studio might now not hire other future female directors because they they tried it once and it didn't work out so we're gonna wait a decade and and female film directors were responsible for that that feeling so often that I I get when I revisit these these 90s films and I I appreciate so much their persistence to create films that do work with relationships and and you know maybe they get relegated to a rom-com genre title but who cares like that it's it's fun and they they encompass a lot of what we built on uh, as as young women. You know, that is also saying, you know, there's some negative things there for sure as well. And I'm hoping we get to unpack some of that as we move forward. Considering the film that we viewed now and then, which character do you see the most of yourself in? And is this different from when you first watched the movie as a kid? Not you, Ashton, sorry. But who who do you identify with and and has that changed? I related to Christina Ricci. That was all. I uh, I think I always wanted to be Christina Ricci, but I think in reality I was more Chrissy. <laughs> <laughs> I had a problematic childhood, guys. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I feel like I'm probably the same with Laura. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I think that I wanted to be the Christina Ricci, but if I were to get typecast, it probably would be Chrissy. That is a hard question for me. I guess I probably was like teeny. I was like, let's just shove these tennis balls down my leotard really quick and see what boobs look like and <laughs> yeah i'm not i'm just not dark enough to be sam the demi moore and gabby hoffman character and i th- I, I probably am like a cross between like teeny and roberta yeah christina ricci i love her she is kind of like rosie o'donnell of the 90s like of our generation i feel like 
Her character did really confuse me though. And she had like the breakdown and like shattered the mirror for no reason and was suddenly like, that was just a moment of like 90s crazy writing. I feel like we're just like, wait a minute. <laughs> so that's just like a little jab, I guess. I'm taking it. Poor Christina Ricci. She did her, <laughs> She did a great job for an actor at her age. She did great. It was just like a confusing moment. It was so it wasn't really even the acting. I because I agree. It was a weird moment where they had like front they had like seated that earlier where there would have been a good moment for it to have had that breakdown, and then they decided to do it Like there. at the library. Yeah, no, that's where it would have made sense. Well, she had to break a mirror, and there are no mirrors <laughs> there at, the aren't any mirrors at the library. That's a great <laughs> It was the shattering of her inner self and her innocence. It was a metaphor, <laughs> which is why we needed the mirror. The shattering of her childhood <laughs> happened right there. <laughs> we saw it in real time. There was the moment with, with Teeny uh, when she climbs to the top of her roof. Her parents are throwing a party or something like that. And she climbs to the top of her roof and sits up there and watches a movie from the drive-in. Yes. And I loved that moment. That reminded me so much of my little escapist moments in the 90s. You like, We could go anywhere and do anything in the 90s. Like I would be out past dark in the woods, like digging a hole. Like there were like no <laughs> limits. I could just go. Yeah, do and we're so much less afraid of of the world and of course this film takes place in the 70s so there's even there's even more of that and they're of course in that gated community this yeah it's wild it made you feel safe because it's like also about a brutal murder of a mother and son (laughs) i know like that's so interesting because again for me that movie even as a kid and like i remembered before the rewatch like that movie it's kind of creepy and there are quite a few themes that we could tease out from this film and the most obvious is of course friendship and how friendship is depicted in the film and and the different types of connections these these young women share we see this this theme of friendship in 90s films quite frequently and i think that there's some really difficult aspects to it as well i mean the way they treat chrissy is is brutal and it's so indicative of the shame culture that the 90s was steeped in and I'm just wondering what you what you picked up on in regards to the fat shaming. Well, and I want to go back a sec to the the friendship piece too, because and this connects to the fat shaming, but because that was obviously the most obvious example of them not getting along or just having this weird conflict. But I feel like a lot of, and I'm going to go ahead and say, particularly female friendship depictions in the '90s was this really weird mix of we're friends, but we don't like each other. Yeah, it's like vindictive. Like when Roberta fakes her own death in the lake, I feel like that was kind of pointed at Chrissy almost. I know she's working through a grief or that's what's going on in that moment. But like their exchange of dialogue after that happened is just, I think really exemplifies too, Laura, what you're saying. Just this kind of cutting, it's like undercutting friendship where it's their friends, but nobody hesitates to criticize Chrissy being fat or prude or, you know, and I, and they piled all of the stereotypes onto one character, which was irritating too. Like, I feel like she was the weak character and they like, and through the writing, there were multiple points of making her that, like, even as an adult being so caring and wanting the friends to come back together and be with her, I feel like was honestly written as a point of weakness, not as a pro at this time. It felt really weird. Like it felt, yeah, it felt like a, like, 
what's wrong with you that you want these people you haven't seen in so long present when you give birth. Like, that's a weird thing. As an adult now, you're like, wait, what? You know, like even my closest friends now, like, you don't need to come anywhere near that. Like, it's good. I got my doctor. I'm good. You know, like, and so it was, it did feel like a clinginess or something. It, It felt really problematic. And I remember feeling weird about that even as a kid watching it, but definitely as a rewatch, it's like very unpalatable, really, how they treat Chrissy and like the theme being friendship that really irks me. And even like Demi Moore when she comes back to I'm like, where is the friendship happening? You're just like so pissed. And going off of that, the way that they wrote Chrissy and was not great and her friendship with Roberta was strange, but I thought the moments that they had with Samantha and Teeny, especially when they go to the treehouse shop for lack of a better word and they hang out in there and she gives her the friendship charm i thought they wrote their friendship and their friendship made a lot more sense to me especially when they came back together they also had a similar point of view they both left the town and were both coming back for the first time in the future so their their relationship made a lot of sense to me but i agree like roberta and and um chrissy just didn't make much sense to stick together and i didn't quite understand why they even remained friends afterwards maybe it goes back to rochelle's thing about not go like diving into character development you know and like roberta's character is so heavy like she's got a lot going on she's taping her boobs her mom died she lives with boys you know She's kissing a boy and none of her friends know Devin Sawa. (laughs) And she never taped her boobs after that day. (laughs) Well, it's, it's funny saying, talking about taping boobs. When I think about the 90s, I think of grunge. And I think of the antithesis of femininity. And so it just kind of all falls into place when in this conversation, looking at these characterizations, the most feminine one, the most nurturing one is silly, kind of ridiculous, and is absolutely the butt of the joke at every opportunity. So that just makes me think about what it's like to be a feminine person during this time. I feel like there's no room for that during the 90s. Well, and it's interesting because, yeah, her femininity is kind of mocked, whereas Teeny, because hers becomes more of a sexualized femininity, she's like rewarded at the end with a career and she gets to be famous and she gets all of everything she wants and is and is elevated because she's more sexualized than somebody totally. who's expressing herself, however, you know, in her own way. Yeah, you have to be a career driven person, a career driven woman. Because to be a housewife, like the 1950s housewife, is ridiculous, is death, is not progressive, Mm -hmm. is the message. Yeah, it was definitely missing other than Teeny and Samantha in the treehouse. I feel like it was missing like warmth of actual friendship on all cylinders. And that kind of feels like the 90s to me. Like I always say this about friends, but I feel like that's just an easy example of like cutting humor in the nineties. Like things were way more cutting even towards people you cared about, you know, like, and I feel like that could even be part of the grunge, like the coolness of the nineties, like that attitude. Like how it's, it's not cool to be sincere or Or supportive or yeah. Empathetic, I guess. I don't know, but I've noticed that. And it's not so much in like the teen flicks, it's more in where like adults are portraying or, you know, people like in their thirties, I feel like are playing stuff. I didn't, I don't 
noticed that so much in like the ever after or like the films that were specifically pointed at a younger audience necessarily there are some and that makes me curious about what girl power really meant then in the 90s and I mean we've just been unpacking how it's being portrayed and how there are certain cool ways to be a girl and there are certain old-fashioned ways to be a girl so but then what is girl power it's such a great point equalization between the sexes to quote spice world the movie but think about Spice World, the movie, like those ladies weren't super nice and like uplifting and supportive of one another. They're cutting as shit. There's always an element. I, I often see an element of competition or like a lack of ability to be vulnerable that really questions or creates a question around the authenticity of the connection for me. And I don't know if it goes back to that. It's just not cool to be vulnerable. It's not cool to be flawed. It's not cool to have massive rage inside of you that you share with your friends because your mom died and they'll all totally get it but you don't tell them and then you pretend to die again and again and traumatize them yeah that's rational i wonder if it's partly to do too with this idea of particularly in the 90s and that like post year of the woman and like female empowerment but the way to be an empowered woman was to be masculine Mm -hmm. right and to like rely on these masculine tropes like the power suit and this idea of of uh, you know, shoulder pads and, and trying to create this this masculine silhouette because you didn't want to be a woman because a woman was weak. And how we see that ripple out then into pop culture when it comes to portraying 11-year-old girls having this female friendship and wanting it to be something to idealize, it has to be tinged with that like stereotypical apathy or or cuttingness or, you know, because it's not cool to be vulnerable and sensitive like you guys are saying because that's traditionally a female thing and female things are weak and so then you have like the two tropes like the aggressive and then also like the hyper feminine sexualized Mm -hmm. woman too because I feel like that was another like source of power I mean it's always been a source of power I guess in a way but especially the way media played that up for objectifying women so I feel like you get both and I feel like this movie exemplifies both perfectly kind of too I also love in 90s movies how they're like, say, kids, guess what? You'll grow up to be a movie star. You'll grow up to be a doctor. You'll grow up to be a famous writer. And you'll grow up to be a 50s housewife, Chrissy. Go F yourself. <laughs> like, Jeez Louise. I was looking at the actors. And, you know, we I mean, we're all familiar with Christina Ricci and, of course, Thora Birch. And Gabby Hoffman, I mean, she was in Sleepless in Seattle, right? I'm not sure what else she was in. But there was, like, nothing for Ashley Ashton Moore, who plays Chrissy. And that's because she died. What the? Yeah, young. Oh. That's right. I think she died of pneumonia. Like, it was in, like, the mid-2000s. Holy moly of pneumonia. That is wild. They made her gain weight for the role. Yeah, she gained like 20 pounds or something. And I think I remember her reading, she was like into it. She was like, cool, I like to eat and just put on the weight. And then so because I mean, because that's one of the things I think about, too, when I watch films like this now as an adult and you see when they critique a body, like it's one thing to make fun of a character and the way they behave because you're acting. But it's like, hey, fatty, you know, it's like, well, that's that's that person, right? That's like who they that's how they exist in the world. Uh And but because, like, it, she said she was fine with it because it was she just put on this weight and then lost the weight. Um, but but it, it, it makes me always think of that when you, particularly from these 90s contexts where they, they critique 
because I, I remember um, Growing Pains, another 90s, mm-hmm. um, right? They used to make fun of the sister all the time for yeah. being overweight. And then the actress developed anorexia. Tracy. And that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it seems like a really, really tough landscape to be famous in a woman during that decade, during the 90s, especially. Like, I guess the 80s, too. Probably forever since the, like, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon white ladies, like, the thing. That sucks. Another prominent theme was like the idea of being separated from people you love, whether that's them coming together after all of these years or divorce or, you know, a horrible murder. <laughs> when 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 we're thinking about crazy Pete and how he lost his wife and child. I I was surprised. I don't know why I'm so surprised by the heaviness of like this topic and dealing with with death and divorce in like a humorous way. When we don't have the depth of character to support it, it ends up being so plot driven for me. And I think that that was something that I was noticing more in this film because of how uh, serious these these themes were. Uh, to the core story. I mean, that's everything that that motivates Roberta is the loss of of her mother. And then we've got, you know, Sam, her parents going through this divorce. Uh, It just, it really stuck out to me. I feel that that's a theme that I have noticed as a general, as a general note for films from this era, where there's a really heavy, serious situation going on that's handled really lightly, really, really lightly. I mean, Overboard actually is a great example of that. This woman is essentially has essentially been abducted. You know, she's being abused by this man who's gaslit the shit out of her because she has amnesia. Like that is messed up. But and if if anyone thinks of another film that has this sort of heavy theme that's just ends up being so plot driven. I thought of one, but I'm not sure if I necessarily agree that it was like kind of handled lightly. I thought they handled it well, especially as a child of a divorced family. But the movie that came to mind was Mrs. Doubtfire. And I think that's one where they handled it from almost every single character's perspective extremely well um, for that topic. And I, I, I have never felt in that movie anyway that they didn't dive deep enough into how people were feeling about the divorce and they handled that topic well, which is what you do not see in, in this movie that we're talking about now and then. Because it doesn't deep dive. This film just doesn't dive yeah. into any of the characters. You literally get little vignettes of them at the very beginning when they're in their rooms and like Chrissy's brushing her hair and Teeny's stuff in her bra. She's just like Cassidy Brooks in around her room. <laughs> and Roberta's taping her boobs at that point. You know, you get like those little like peeks into their world and then that's kind of it. Like there are little vignettes of that, but there's no like and I think I agree. I think that was sort of a I mean, I think we're just evolving as as humans and what we want to take in is entertainment, you know. So a flat character that has no depth to them or like Roberta and us not getting really into the meat of what happened to her mom and how she feels about that. That just doesn't, that just doesn't work anymore. I will say the moment where Sam and her family are at dinner and the grandmother comes to the door and she starts yelling at them to hide under the table. And they're just like, I want to talk to grandma. And she's like, I don't want to talk to grandma right now. I did like that moment. I thought that was a good development <laughs> moment in that one little nugget. If we could have 
expanded on that, I think we could have gotten further, but. Yeah, I think that there are nuggets throughout. I completely agree, Ashton. The idea, like you were saying, Cassidy, about how it's it's so there's so much flatness and the commitment to the flatness of these characters. Uh, how in the world then could we expect the minimal efforts that they make toward being progressive, quote unquote, progressive, for them to be anything other than failures? A lot of lessons haven't been learned in the world, whether they have now or not is, you know, up for a debate, but we haven't gone through a lot of uh, what we now draw from when we're consuming media and when we're looking for diversity and when we are expecting uh, topics to be handled in a certain way or to even be presented. What did you think about how now and then tried to insert its progressive side? I felt that way a little bit with the Brendan Fraser cameo uh this like it felt like they wanted to take this stance and want to talk about the Vietnam War and they wanted to you know make this like nod to it and, and acknowledge it was a thing obviously but it again felt so flat and it was like we're gonna have this like weird conversation with him while we drink cokes and <laughs> maybe smoke a cigarette and then we're just gonna breeze past it because like we checked the box like a lot of this movie feels like well we want to check the box on progressivism versus doing the work of progressivism and maybe that's just because that's where at nine where we were in the 90s where we felt like we moved past the reagan era and like things were good and the economy was booming and uh you know equality for all i guess um and it just 25 years later just looks flat and and half-hearted and kind of a bummer maybe in the 90s even just addressing it like was a big deal though like again I'm thinking about friends and callous writing and Ross and his first wife who's a lesbian Mm -hmm. and the laugh track goes off at the word lesbian like every time it leaves Ross's mouth almost you know and so I feel like in, in the 90s it was like well they're addressing a lesbian marriage so like that's amazing and like they said lesbian moving on let's (laughs) Let's add a laugh track to it and move on like I just feel like that you can find so many examples of that across not only this entire film because I think that's the thing for me that I was saying about my nay that just makes it kind of because it's peppered in so many different elements of like yeah we're trying to be progressive no but as far as being progressive where where is the line for the time period that we're talking about right so talking about lesbians in general in the 90s was more taboo than it is now because we have changed as a culture and as a society so even though it was kind of the butt of the joke they were trying to bring that into the forefront obviously other shows did a better job Buffy did a better job of that but they still fall victim to something that happens with a lot of gay and lesbian characters where they just kill them off and they're disposable which still happens today so I mean and I totally agree like I guess that's what I was trying to get at with just by saying like just by addressing things in writing I feel like that was considered brave on mainstream media in the 90s you know to just like put it out into the ether and and how the laugh track then creates like puts it out there in a palatable way for like quote unquote like the masses or however you want to you know like whatever yeah, so the... it's like digestible which i mean yeah. i you know it's like maybe that is the same with like what disney's doing now with trying to have more representation in their characters i can't i don't know if it was black as king that they were talking about this with 
um, but just essentially trying to have more representation and how that's not only going to be affecting for the kids, but it's going to be affecting for parents who have rigid views on certain things, you know, so yeah, it's hard to rewatch that stuff, especially when it becomes the butt of the joke. Taking it in context of the time that it came out is vital, for sure. But something that I keep coming up to is technology in this conversation. I feel that the 90s really covered pop culture, mainly because film was getting more sophisticated. More films were being made. Digital happened, which completely changed the scope of film. There was so much more film happening. So in some ways, it's, it's the 90s has had the most coverage up until that point, And that is going to go for the next for forever. You know, technology is exponentially evolving and changing and we're capturing more and more of what society is right now. So we're constantly being able to better frame the conversation, whether or not that's a better framing. It's just we have more to look at, especially when I think about films from previous eras, the 90s felt like the youth takeover, you know? And so I don't know, again, you have to take it in context of the time, all of its pitfalls, but it almost feels like the 90s was the kids got hold of the camera and turned it on and went nuts. Does any of that resonate with any of you? Oh, yeah. Especially with like all those fun commercials Ashton loved to watch and stuff like because all those commercials still like those were made for me as a child. And not only kids were watching those in the 90s, like (laughs) any commercial, like a Pizza Hut commercial from the 90s that in my mind made for a child. (laughs) Was the 90s when Nickelodeon launched? I think they like were like early lately, 90s, late 80s, 80s and like the Disney early. Channel, you know, with yeah. like Rescue Rangers oh, and yes. Tailspin. And oh, yeah. Gummy we bears. are such a TV generation, like we probably are. the worst, honestly, because we had that cable. We were the first. No. No. <laughs> I, I think we are, though, because if you're thinking about, you know, like the 60s generation with maybe both working parents and you had, I mean, my dad, like he, he would come home, he'd let himself in after school and he'd just watch TV until... His mom got Well, home. and that was before people were like, hey, 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 don't watch too much. Like, this is bad. It was like still like novel and like, Ooh. well, and there were four networks. You know, there wasn't and a ton of options. We were definitely the first generation that had a, t- we had MTV, we had Nickelodeon, oh. we had, you know, we had cable. full channels catering Each to one. children. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what I mean. Like, okay. it was so formative for us. We couldn't escape it. Whereas our parents and and, and I have older parents, you know, the, there's a ranger when I say parents, you know, I'm definitely referring to boomers, I guess. But I definitely feel like young Gen Xers and older millennials were formed by media in such a way that had not yet happened. Yeah, because we you weren't know? ahead of it to have any hindsight, you know, we were like, I mean, same with the internet, right? We just were like, riding the first wave of it, really. And also maybe the first to have media shaped towards us mm-hmm. kind of versus because if you like yeah, MTV in the 80s and then and also networks that went round the clock, right? Cable didn't shut off at whatever after the news like it used to in the eight, in the early mm-hmm. 80s. And suddenly it was channels developed for different age segments. Well, yeah, we definitely had the benefit of no longer being lumped into family television. It was very, very specified production 
for very specific target audiences versus like trying to please everyone all sitting down to watch their favorite family television show together, you know, away from that, that uh, idealized American dream or the romance of, of what things looked like in America in the seventies and eighties. So would we say that the 90s was really the birth of our individualistic nature that we've developed, especially more so now with internet and every piece of media that you consume, you can tailor make to just be focused on what you individually think? Was that the start of it then? I don't know. I feel like the internet was actually the start of things coming together and like people on the fringe getting representation in the voice so I mean maybe it's both too but I do feel like the internet is actually more of a like bringing together force as far as media and writing and because of things like eventually like tumblr or imager you know like those sorts of things where people were writing blogs and finding uh, like the trans community finding other people that could relate to that or you know I think it in a way is why we have entertainment like we do today that is so highly realistic and uh dives deeply into many different types of stories because now there's communities surrounding people you know like I feel like there was a safety there for a lot of people too like finding their community finding their identity you know because talk about no black people in a 90s film or I mean really no plus size representation either or if it was it was mocked well yeah media and technology really helped usher in the concept of the individual as unique and special but there was still a very specific type of individual that was marketed as the ideal consumer or yeah. as the ideal uh, creator, as the ideal target. And there's just so much whiteness in that, that we were so limited in our ability to fully develop our own identity in a more holistic capacity because we were just, we're all white. We were just taught, we are ideal. And, and it's really, I think it really shows through in, in both technology and media uh, in the directionality of, of, of those coming together in the late 90s. It's interesting, too, because with all that change in the 90s and with that push towards, towards, you know, with the Internet and with inclusion, like you have a film like this, then that is all about looking back. 25 years to a time when mm -hmm. we were in an all white community and they are, and you do, you have this range of girls growing up, but the range is from like, you know, like 20 pounds overweight, maybe to like tiny. Yeah. And then all of them of a certain class, all of them mm -hmm. with a certain family type, you know, mm -hmm. the range is so limited mm -hmm. and, and yet it's supposed to show this diversity of experiences of these girls growing up but it's such a small segment um, to think about for how, what does that say then a kind of about the mid nineties and, and what we viewed as nostalgia. And it really kind of makes me curious because we're now 25 years out from the movie, right? So the movie was looking back 25 years. And so us looking back 25 years to make mm -hmm. a film like this now would be 1995. Yeah. I think that that would be a takeaway for me is remembering to question my nostalgia and the safety that it creates for me, and how that may impede my ability to unlearn so much of this socialization, like staying comfortable. I mean, we love nostalgia. I'm such a nostalgia junkie, but it it really has its detriment uh, to development, especially when we're talking about 
movies like this that do not include enough people. They do not include enough socioeconomic status. They don't include enough range to actually depict human life. So I think that's that's a good challenge that you unintentionally gave me, Laura, is to question my nostalgia and and the comfort that it brings me to make sure that I'm not letting it hold me back or stay stagnant. Totally. That a takeaway for me based on this conversation are all the blind spots that are happening right now that we won't know until we get more space and we get outside of the picture. And it is reinforcing the important conversations that we have been having as a society more and more. It makes me grateful for those conversations and and concerned for what we're missing because we're in it. We can't help but be where we are now. We can't get outside of that. So mindfulness moving forward with my viewing. My takeaway, I feel like, has been a takeaway of mine probably more than twice on our podcast, <laughs> and it's representation. And as white people, I think it's seeking out other people's representation and stories that to me I get really bored with this story this type of a story now like it's so boring this movie's so boring it's very boring and again it's like what you said Laura it's like they're trying to present this like range of how things are different it's like here's a white suburban person's perspective you know so I think I think I find media exciting to consume that are people's perspectives and stories that I've not heard before where I'm learning something about human nature or like hum- humanity. And I feel like in the 90s, white media, you really like don't get that a lot. You get elements of it, but yeah. So just representation and doing it where you actually talk to people who are part of those groups before you ask a thin person to gain weight or, you know, like just being gentle with representation and honoring it. I think a takeaway for me from this too is in similar in those lines, but I think what's blown my mind a lot about this conversation and this movie itself is, is, you know, I was, I was 11 when it came out. So I was the same age as the girls, which means I'm now the same age as the women in the film which is kind of a trip. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I also have a niece who's currently 11. So when I look at her and I think about, I've made suggestions of like, oh my God, I love this movie when I was young. We should watch this. Like we should do movie night with this film. Realizing that by exposing her to the films that I loved as a child, what is she now not consuming? You know, like she suggested we got to go watch the new Babysitter's Club, which is so much better (laughs) than (laughs) um, the things that, that we watched when we were younger. And so making sure that watching a film like this, there's a conversation that goes with it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, put my teacher hat on and like get a chalkboard (laughs) out, but just like, what did you notice? Or what did you not notice? And kind of see how, how we can have a critical conversation about it. So it doesn't become internalized the way I think it was with, with us as kids. Piggybacking off of, of what you just said, Laura. Uh, I was thinking about it as you were talking is if we were to remake this movie right now, what would it look like? And I think that's a lot of what's happening right now as we're seeing some older movies get remade. Are they honoring it with today's mindset? Are they challenging themselves to answer some of these questions that we brought up to include diversity and include representation in their pictures? And a few I can think of off the top of my head, I think the answer is no, but there are some examples like the Babysitter's Club where they're they're 
trying to make positive change and, and fit within the current climate that we're in. I would actually be so darn excited if they remade now and then. Like, I would be very curious to see that treatment. I bet it happens. You know, millennials, we love remakes and nostalgia. So we'll, we'll eat it up, whatever it is. Well, it was wonderful to throw back with you all. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Laura and Ashton. We loved having you. And we look forward to other That 90s Show additions to Crow Talk in future seasons. Uh, so we'll be, you know, reviewing that list that you gave us, Ashton, that beautifully exhaustive, perfect 90s iconic film list uh, for maybe a future episode. Hopefully, if nothing else, this encourages you to think critically as you review films stuck at home for some of you, some of you are back, back to normal life almost. But this COVID experience has given us an opportunity to shift gears and make the most out of a difficult time. So please be sure that you're, you're staying safe and enjoying streaming from home. Did we all say something different? I just laughed. I was like, I got stuck. And then I saw Cassie's face and I just couldn't. This has been a Quarantine Style Talking to Crows production.